Hi, my name is Alex Kelly, co-founder of Bright Flag, and this is In-House Outliers, a podcast where I interview those who've taken unconventional paths and challenged conventional notions of how in-house legal should operate. I'm delighted to be joined today on the podcast by Susan Pakal, a trailblazer in the legal ops community. Susan spent the first half of her career in HR and operations roles with AMLO 100 firms before starting her legal ops journey at Hilton Worldwide. She then went on to build legal operations teams and lead as chief of staff for tech companies like Uber, eBay, Twilio and Sync. Susan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Exciting to be here. Susan, let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I split my time between the Midwest in the Chicago and Wisconsin area and where my father was in Tennessee. So I had sort of uh, split my time between both both places. And how would you describe yourself as a kid? Well, I was certainly one of those kids who didn't want to do what everyone else was doing. So certainly uh, in my family, which was my stepfather was in academia. So there was sort of, there was an expectation that everyone would, you know, carry more than, than your regular load. And so mine was to get involved with um, music and everyone played the piano or everyone played the violin in my town. That was just, someone came up with that idea and that's what everyone did. And when I was quite small, I saw this huge instrument that you sat in a chair with and sort of put between your knees and it looked massive and it was beautiful sounding. And I just looked at it and said, well, I want to learn to play that because hardly anyone plays the cello. So that started my uh, short-lived cello career where I started in symphony. And I, I did, I did play cello up until college, but I had to be different. I couldn't just do what everyone else was doing. Someone who was forced to play the piano for a few years unsuccessfully with a complete lack of <laughs> musical talent. Uh, I can relate to that kind of desire to break out and, and do something a little bit different. And you referenced the fact that your father was was living in Tennessee and you spent a little bit of time there. Was that one of the reasons you decided to go then and study at the University of Tennessee? Exactly right. Yeah, both my mother and my father originally married. Each had gone to Vanderbilt and University of Tennessee. So sort of Tennessee was very much a part of my family. And so when time came to go to college, like there was, there was no other place I was going to go. Like that University of Tennessee was certainly where I was headed. With a career as a celloist, not, not something you were going to pursue. Did you have a, a career in mind while you were at college? I did. I did. And kind of a funny story, um, how it's played out in my adult life, but I, from a very young age, really gravitated towards criminal science and criminology. So really going into college, I thought for certain I was going to be pre-law and, you know, or, or criminology and go into law enforcement or something like that. So that that is really how I entered college and, and really thought that that's what I would be doing as a career. I think you may be the third or fourth guest on in-house outliers who started college with an interest in criminology or forensics or that side of the law who has ended up as a legal operations leader like yourself so I'm mm, yeah I, say. I don't know what that says uh, says about about <laughs> a whole other podcast on that yeah <laughs> there, there you go we need a psychologist for that one what then led you into working in the the people space well I ended up with a degree in sociology 
And so I spent, you know, my time during in, in college and in, in psych classes and sociology classes. So certainly that people oriented understanding, you know, how we think, how we react to things, and then how ultimately how, you know, we apply that in business was sort of the the path I I ended up on uh, through through college. And what were then your biggest learnings working in people roles at law firms that have stood to you in your subsequent career in legal ops? Yeah, interesting, because that's really where my career started. I was an HR professional for, you know, the first 10 years of my, well, first, I would say eight to 10 years of my career. And so understanding the end-to-end processes of people in your business life cycle. So I was a recruiter. I was, you know, I was an onboarding specialist. So all I did was come up with ways to onboard most efficiently and, you know, talk to new hires after they've been with mm-hmm. the company and, and where I first started was in the big four consulting. And so in those companies, you know, I was doing about 47 new hires a week, sometimes as high as 70 a week onboarding folks. So talking to them, you know, 60 days after they joined to find out what their experience was, all of that just gave me this really good foundational learning for what I would apply, end up applying later, which is just sort of, we talk about user experience, you know, when we talk about legal technology and so forth, but you also have just this human experience and employee experience when you join a new legal team and a new company and what happens after the company onboards you, but then you're plunked down in the legal team. How do you build a program so that you keep and maintain those people? Absolutely. That kind of onboarding experience and immersing somebody in the culture of the organization, getting them up to speed at a functional level on their role, creating that sense of connection to, to what, what you're trying to achieve is uh, is no mean feat, particularly at the scale you're talking about there in terms of the volume of people that you were, you were yes. as well. So presumably there was a significant kind of operational aspect of that and process aspects of that as well. Yeah, there there was. And, and I, I remember, you know, as it was fairly young in my career, but what I was learning was the importance of consistency in the messages that I was delivering each week, because, you know, I was up in front of 75 new hires every week, giving them important information about joining KPMG or PwC and what, what you know, what did you need to know in order to be successful? And typically I was onboarding people who had far more career experience than I had at that point. So you really learn just, you know, the importance of the consistency and the messaging resource, providing resourcing for people to get up to speed. And then of course, circling back with them and learning from where there were gaps in that process. And just always sort of, you know, that, that cycle of, of the, the feedback and iteration that goes into that type of program. Absolutely. And then moving forward in time a little bit, what ultimately prompted your transition from people to legal operations within Hilton? Well, it was interesting because as I furthered my career in HR in in law firms, that that sort of morphed into then director of operations roles or you know director of firm administration roles, and so I was getting that operational component it was still you know very heavy HR, but it had that operating budget piece, and you know it had um, just everything that kind of workplace services and running the mailroom and, you know, all these different components in, in running a big firm gave me sort of that operations lens. And so the opportunity to join Hilton was actually as a, as a consultant in HRBP for the CFO at the time and the chief legal officer. And so they, when I joined to be their HRBP, sort of junior HRBP to a senior HRBP, 
they had a legal operations role open, the first one that, you know, that they were going to have at Hilton. And I was helping them sort of source that role and sort of, you know, help them define what they were looking for. And it was during that process where I remember the GC just sort of turned to me and said, well, I don't, really don't quite understand why this position has been as open and as long as it has. And you haven't said anything about being interested in the role. Like, have you considered this? You know, let's talk about it. And um, that was really literally my pivot from a pure sort of ATAR role into, okay, now I'm actually, my title is now a legal operations director. That was obviously in the early days of the legal operations movement before the term was well understood or there was uh, as much context as there exists today in the broader community as to as to what it entails. And many of those kind of pioneering legal operations leaders like yourself that I've spoken to, it started with that kind of great relationship with the GC who was kind of the champion and saying, you know what, I think you would yes. be at this, at this role. But presumably yes. with that, um, Susan, there came some gaps of, or some areas for development or learning to be successful in the role. It's true. Where did you find those in that initial phase when you, you decided, you know, this actually looks like it could be really interesting for me? Where were those biggest areas for development? Well, certainly back then, you know, clock was still mainly on the West Coast. And, and I, I remember being one of the people on the East Coast trying to get into clock back then. Like, I, they, they, I'm they sure, you know, Connie remembers me back in the day, just sort of, can I join? Can I join? Well, it's really, you know, for West Coast, you know, people in the tech company. I know, but could I'm really interested. Could I join? Like, that's sort of, I was the annoying one off on the side back then. But you know, back then you're sort of figuring it out on your own. You know, we didn't have the core 12, you know, we just did not, we weren't all galvanized around a movement. You know, we were all sort of figuring it out. So for me, it was sort of, you know, pulling myself up by the bootstraps and figuring it out and, and sort of determining what the business at the time needed. And this was at the time, a 97 year old company. This was a company that had gone private. Uh, the Hilton family was no longer involved. They had moved from Beverly Hills to McLean, Virginia. And they had laid off, you know, a substantial amount of their workforce when they went private. So the company was going through like this transformation. So I was, you know, carving my own path as a one-woman shop for a while. And I will never forget this pivotal moment because it really has impacted the rest of my career. Was at the time the deputy general counsel at Hilton was responsible for the operating budget. You know, we had a pretty substantial FP&A team. The problem was not getting information. It was sort of back then there wasn't an operations person or function that was taking that information and like doing amazing things with it. But I had determined that, you know, I wanted to, this was an, a core competency that, that legal operations should be involved in. And I sort of went to the GC and sat down one day and just, you know, sort of puffed myself up and said, you know, I think I'm ready to take this on. And I think, you know, the DGC good on him, but I think I'm ready to take this on. And she was so great. She said it nicer than I'm going to say it, but in essence, she just looked at me and said, you know, you're terrible with numbers, Susan. I just don't, I don't know if this is really in it. I mean, she was, you know, very direct about it. And of course I was, I was crushed, you know, I just thought, you know, so it, it took a moment of sort of really reflection. And then I was 100% going to take that and I was going to make it my own and I was going to maze her. And that was just the end of it. That's what I was going to do. So it it really was a pivotal moment for me because I recognized I'm never going to get anywhere uh, in legal operations and if I cannot master this. So I threw myself at the mercy of FP&A and I just said, I need you to speak to me like I'm three. I need to go through all of these things with you. I need to really understand exactly how the business runs 
how we report revenue. I need to understand everything about our cost centers. And at the time Hilton was quite large, you know, it was a daunting task. And I think it took about a quarter for me of just on my own, just doing everything I could. And so then I started taking a bit more responsibility over from the DGC for reporting. And sure enough, I think it took maybe a quarter and a half, maybe two. And by the time I did sort of, he handed it over to me, we beat budget every quarter after that, from the time that I had taken that on till the time I ended up leaving. So we're probably talking about four years, maybe three and a half years of, of beating budget every quarter. So I knew it was just a matter of like determination and looking back, it was probably her way of, of helping me honestly. And just being really honest, like, look, if you want more responsibility, you have to, you have to get this competency under your, under your belt. And so I've never looked back since then. It's, it's an area still that I feel like I can always be better, but that is one of the most important relationships that I have whenever I build a, a legal operations team, when I go into a new company is to really understand the finance organization and get in early and often with them. But she, I thank her to this day for challenging me that because it was hard news to hear, but it certainly affected, literally affected me for the rest of my career in a good, in a good way. It can be very difficult, number one, for a leader to be that candid and direct with somebody about their area for development. Number two, it necessitates that person receiving the feedback to have the mindset, the kind of learning mindset to not kind of shy away from that feedback and just kind of fall back on the things that they are strong on, but to actually as you did, kind of embrace the challenge and become a, a true expert. And and certainly it's our bread and butter here at Bright Flag. I know financial management is just a foundational pillar of a, a true legal ops leader has Absolutely. to have that in their toolkit. It, it's a great example of how you can lean on your internal colleagues and, in, as you said, in the FBNA team to help you get up to speed quickly and, and deliver in, in what's needed in that role. Yes. And, and what I like about it too, is just the struggle that I went through to kind of transform myself in that area has also made me a better manager because now when I have folks that, because I, I now have, you know, you know, a group of folks under, under me over the years who have now progressed in their career and they've had that conversation with me. They're like, okay, look, I need you to be honest with me. Like, I, I want to sit in your seat one day. Can you tell me what, what, what am I missing? Where are the gaps? And, and most often it is in that finance operational budget management, financial planning area, you know, interesting to find myself in that other, on the other side, talking about, okay, how do we get you those skills? So it's a different conversation than the GC had with me, but it's sort of like, okay, and then what can I take from my plate, you know, to start feeding those in the nest to sort of give them those skills that they need and then watch them take that and parlay that as they grow their careers, which is, you know, we live for that. That's, that's the best. 100%. And talking about the, the GC as a role, like the self-awareness, very often the GC themselves are not the most financially literate and need the yes. to, to, to bring yes. skill set to bear as well. Yes, it's interesting. Uh, and I know we'll get into this later, but just even in running my own firm right now, that is interesting is having conversations. I'm in a different different role now. And so to, to have GCs talk to me about you know, hey, I've just been put in role in the last couple of years. I need to evolve my competency in financial management. It's just not something I had in law school. It's not something I've been doing up to this point. But now that I'm a GC in a, in a fairly large team, you know, how can you help me do that? So those are rewarding, enriching conversations. And there's no one answer, of course, but just it is very interesting to just see people at all stages of their career recognizing this is this is key 
to running your legal function like a business. And then you you focused on building your financial literacy, taking over responsibility for the budget, hitting or coming in un- under the budget. But aside from that, then at Hilton, can you walk us through how you went about developing your strategy and, and roadmap? And, and you referenced the fact you were a one woman team for a period of time, which probably had a limiting factor in what, what you could do. But what did that look like? Yeah, so I think back then, you know, I, I don't mind sharing. I, I don't feel like looking back, I can I can point to a roadmap approach at the time. It was really figuring it out, figuring out what the business needed. I was trying to build something from the ground up that was very heavy on the on the operating expense piece and very heavy on the technology side. And so when you know Hilton decides it's going to invest in a technology, maybe there, you know, it's a massive project team that has to be pulled together to, you know, to pull something like that off. So, you know, that was really the the first time I was working hand in glove with, you know, solution architects and, you know, network folks who were responsible for like enterprise platforms across Hilton. And, you know, how was my legal going to technology going to fit into that? But I will say it was another piece, which was one of the questions you were asking me about growing my career. It was one of the first roles I had where I was in a position of any project that came up that had an operational component, I would become involved in. And and the the pivotal area that came up for me there was in enterprise risk and in legal risk assessments and legal risk calibration. And that was my first opportunity to participate in a project of building that from the ground up and implementing that. Uh, And our our GC at the the time was very forward thinking in how, you know, she, the degree to which each functional leader within legal should be managing legal risk across the business and having those conversations with your business partners every quarter and reporting on that and, you know, heat maps. And it was, it was very rigorous. And I was fortunate enough to be a, a lead on that project. And since then, I've built legal risk uh, calibration assessments at uh, at two other companies, and one of them, you know, was was a was a substantial program that I, I was it. I was the only one building it, so it was really taking those those Hilton tools and kind of evolving them. So certainly, that idea of not not that legal ops at the time was a dumping ground, but just being open yeah. to you know, I didn't sit down and sort of have you know my ten things that I needed to get done. I was more sort of rolling and flowing with the business and trying to make progress. But also when, you know, an enterprise risk project comes your way, you take it and you do it and you learn. And then of course that becomes career enhancing, you know, later down the road. And presumably as well, Susan, if you had gone through the exercise of developing a strategy and a roadmap, the GC would have been a strong voice at the table. And I I suspect enterprise risk would have been pretty high up on that roadmap. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. You got it. You got it. And I think too, for people there, there's, you know, just as, as, as recently as yesterday, you know, there was a poll on LinkedIn about, you know, what role does your legal operations role report into? Well, at Hilton at the time, you know, I was a click away from the GC. I was reporting to the SVP of compliance at the time. Well, having that reporting structure is what allowed me to get a much better sense of how compliance and risk works in a large matrix organization. And had I not been reporting to the SVP of compliance, I might not have gotten that experience and might not have been able to build programs later in my career. So I think there is something to be said for being open when you do your find yourself for whatever reason, not in a position where they're they're going to have a direct line reporting into the GC, how you can take those learnings then and getting you know, really a much closer vantage point into what goes on into that legal vertical can really be invaluable later down the road. 
that's such great advice. And I think it's something in kind of rounding out like leaders and, and very experienced professionals. Sometimes it's not always just about kind of going straight up the ladder. It's going across and getting those, as you said, that experience deeper within 100%. the function to ultimately then enable you to have a, a more holistic perspective. And, and looking back now with the benefit of hindsight, what projects do you think had the biggest impact at Hilton? Certainly, without a doubt, I think that that uh, that risk project was was one of the biggest ones. It was very complex. You know, we did use outside a, a consultant to help us with it, but it was you know as far as maintaining the program, reporting on it, you know, generate learning how to generate my own heat maps, and just you know it was really complex at the time. I was really pushing Excel sort of beyond what Excel was really meant to do at the time. You know, this was 2012, so it was quite some time ago. Between that and then when we started doing, for an enterprise Hilton size, putting in sort of a client training across the company and how you build training programs that large and branding. Uh, another talent that I had sort of came out of the training, but I also applied it to the larger team is we went through sort of a rebranding effort of legal. You know, we weren't necessarily known as the legal team, you know, the team of no, but certainly, you know, the GC had a, had a vision of, you know, true business partnership and what does that mean and what does that look like? And so we became, you know, we used uh, terms like fearless and things like this for our legal team. So I helped evolve that branding for the legal team so that all of our comms looked consistent coming across out, you know, out from the GC and across company, which probably sounds like, you know, table stakes now, but like back then, you know, there wasn't someone just focused on branding for the legal team. You know, it was sort of, you saw things coming out from marketing or other parts of the, of the, uh, you know, business from the brands, for example, and it looked, you know, like company level, but coming from the legal team, you know, people were still using word and, you know, it just, there just wasn't someone focused on that. So that is another skill. Once I learned how to sort of elevate the comms, the branding, that consistent look and feel every single thing, whether it's a training class, a training memo, or just an email comms from the GC that it all has the same look and feel. I've really been able to apply that at other organizations as well. That's really interesting. And was there a tight connection between the project you did in enterprise risk analysis and then the training uh, in, in that the kind of output of that enterprise risk analysis would inform opportunities to proactively train specific teams or absolutely risks and kind of head off at the PASC issues and more proactive? Absolutely right. Yep. Once you can look at your risks from a heat map perspective and zone in on, we would always zone in like, you know, the top 20 you know, and really when you're talking about the top 20 across an organization like that, sometimes it's programmatic change that has to happen. You may be hiring someone whose sole responsibility is to address some of these, you know, areas of risk, like just for training across the company. So yeah, 100%. That's fascinating. And as you say, way ahead of its time in, in kind of 2012, when you were doing that work. And I know you then went on to lead legal operations at large technology companies, fast growing companies like Uber, eBay, and Twilio. What were the biggest differences between leading legal ops in tech companies like that compared to a company like Hilton, which, as you say, had been around for almost 100 years? Yes, shocking. I do remember, you know, moving to the West Coast from, you know, working in McLean, Virginia to build the first function at at uh, Uber. And, and when I joined, you know, they'd had some, you know, consulting help. They had sort of Legal ops was sort of parsed out to do different areas to to get some th- some things done. And the core ops function at the time was was one very uh, very solid outside counsel management you know e billing person who's gone on to do really great things. 
but when I walked in the door, there wasn't a, a function per se, you know, that was um, staffed. And so I remember my first few weeks there just wondering, like, what have I done? They didn't have printers. I mean, the, the size of the San Francisco Uber office is like two city blocks, right? Or city block and a half. And there was something like two printers to the whole floor. Well, at Hilton, you know, everybody had a printer. You had a printer in your office. And I remember just sort of walking around the floor saying, okay, we're not allowed to use paper, uh, my desk is sort of transient. I have a pen and a laptop. What the hell? You know, I, mean, I just went through a yeah. complete phase of just shock. But once I sort of got past that, I, I do tell people that I learned more at Uber in my first three months than I did at Hilton sometimes in like a year, year and a half. The pace of change, the pace of a tech company in those stages. And as we know now, looking back, there was, there was quite a lot of things happening at the time. But, you know, the pace of growth was absolutely stunning. And just the, the, the pace of the work, the pace of the deliverables, you know, when I, during my interview process was being asked, you know, did I feel comfortable standing up, uh, you know, a contracts, uh, lifecycle management system in three months, you know, how did I feel about that? You know, and just sort of, just, again, this sort of like, you know, back in the day, it was like, oh, we need at least a year, maybe a year and a half to do a big, you know, implementation those days were gone. And so I had, I was a fish out of water for quite some time and really, really had to change how I run my business, how I work personally, uh, efficiently, how I communicated, you know, Slack, hundred percent Slack, virtually no email. I mean, these were just, these were things that I was just not, not used to. So a massive, like you've, you've changed physical location, it's a different industry. It's a completely different pace and different culture. And as you say, that sort of experience accelerates learning hugely. You also Absolutely. took on additional responsibilities by taking on the chief of staff role. How would you classify that, the distinction between somebody who is the legal ops leader and the legal ops leader who is also the chief of staff? You know, I wasn't at Uber. I was at, at Uber less than a year. So I didn't, I wasn't able to hone that craft there, but it's sort of the, the beginning stages. What has happened over the course of my career when I've had that dual role and, and what I talk to GCs a lot about is sort of, they want both. They want someone to do both, but really let's talk about what that really means. And that you don't start off with having a chief of staff and a head of legal ops day one. You know, typically you're very, very ops heavy until you get to a point where you can really even shift to some chief of staff responsibilities. But certainly through eBay and Twilio, I I was able to like sort of get ops up and running and staffed and was able to focus on things like building a career development framework, you know, hiring and growing a legal leadership team for a GC. So someone who maybe is up-leveling the talent in their leadership team, maybe is the pace of growth, like Atulio was so high. So the opportunity to bring in new VPs to lead functions that were um, just being formed, like compliance and areas of privacy were really great opportunities. So I find that I found that the that department branding, that partnering with the people team to deliver a framework for career development, those things were really, really important parts of the job in, in being the chief of staff. Also just helping the GC, whether it's elevate their, you know, when we're talking about their social media presence and getting them out into the world and getting to Davos and getting to these, you know, summits and, and really kind of helping them elevate their brand. Those are all things that you can focus on once you sort of, you know, operations is, is up off the ground and has some, has some lift. Curious, Susan, to what extent your background in people as a people leader before you were a legal ops leader 
enabled you to kind of seamlessly step into that chief of staff role where there is more work around the organizational design of the legal function, career models, things of that nature. How important do you think that grounding that you had or background that you had was? It's a great question. I I mean, I think it, it certainly had an influence and has an influence. I'd love to put more thought into that. I ha- I actually haven't haven't given that a lot of thought. I just have noted. I'll tell you what I've 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 received the com- that comments I've received from GCs has have been that you know when when they're looking across candidates that having someone who has a robust people career sort of under their belt in addition to robust legal ops combined is just not that's not very common for them and they do find that benefit. I think on the flip side of that is though when I do go into organizations, you know, I never sort of hang out the HR shingle. You know, I'm always very careful about partnering with the people team and and having that close relationship where they understand like, hey, I know my swim lanes are over here. You just don't have to worry about me being someone that doesn't get, you know, these issues that are important to you and your function. I get those. So usually the partnership is phenomenal because I do have that understanding. And I don't typically run afoul of the of the people team and how we manage our, our legal function. Absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. And in the same way that many in-house lawyers, legal leaders are not necessarily particularly financially literate themselves, they to some extent are picking up people management skills as they go as in-house lawyers where they start as high impact individual contributor litigators, MA lawyers, and then they become people managers. And that's a very different skill yes. in my experience, having been a lawyer leading a team myself. It's true. Talking then about building that, like necessarily, if you're going to be in that kind of legal ops leader and chief of staff role, you have to have a strong team beneath you, presumably. Having led and built operations teams in many large organizations now what are your kind of principles for effective leadership of your team you know so i firmly believe in um authentic leadership you know i've i've i gave up long ago in leading teams to try to keep up an air of i know everything about what's going on i know 100% what i'm doing all the time you know i mean it would just you know when you're in the trenches with with your team that that doesn't help them at all and it certainly does a disservice to you so what i have found is you know transparency into what is happening what's coming across my plate and while i might not be able to share every single thing that's coming out from the the gc's leadership team the team that works with you needs to have a good sense of what the impacts are on, you know, what the the macroeconomic climate, what, what maybe what the company is is struggling, what some things might feel a little uncertain, you know, as much transparency as you can bring just allows them to operate more effectively. And you certainly don't ever want to have a team that's known for just being tone deaf, not really being included. And they're just, you know, positive go-getters all the time. They, people see through that very quickly and think like, does the ops team really know sort of what we're all struggling with? I do try to find that balance with my team and keeping them certainly informed on on what's going on but then also having a team that is to some degree self-sufficient so i i'm always looking for the self-starters those go-getters those people who have who can manage many many different pieces on the board and keep things moving all across the board uh whether or not you feel like you can move one piece super far in a day you've got to have people who can move things down the field and so I've been fortunate in building teams that way. And so when times get tough, 
it's not a shock to them typically, you know, if, if things start to get rough, they're like, well, you've, you've been kind of saying for the last two quarters that this thing may or may not be coming. So they're much more easily able to pivot with you. And if, certainly if that's what you need with a team that can adjust and pivot as needed, particularly now uh, what's going on in the market. Such great advice there. I think not just limited to the legal ops sphere, but for any leader and the importance of being authentic, of being transparent, of communicating clearly with your team, of keeping them apprised of what's going on in the broader business, the broader world that's going to have an impact on, on what they're doing. And when I talk about that kind of situational awareness and empathy for, yes. for what's happening and then having as a consequence of that, maybe a more agile, robust team that can can react as you need them to. And maybe then drilling into the more kind of specific skill sets you look for in your legal ops team. I know it's not homogenous. It depends on the specifics of what the business is doing. But like, what do you think for a typical large legal department what what does the legal ops team that you have beneath you what what skill sets do you need to have within that i mean absolutely number one is i need a team of people who can execute i just i think that uh even now being in with my own consulting firm and talking to gcs each week they're looking for quick wins they're looking for you know any company that i've had any contact with over the past couple of years is super focused on progress over perfection so you know, yes, I want a team of, you know, mini perfectionists, but really, I mean, honestly, you peel that back a little bit. I I want people to know how to do things right, but who can get it done? That's the hallmark, I think, of any really good legal operations team is that your partners, your other attorneys and staff and the team know if you call legal operations with your problem and you all agree on a course, they will get it done. They will make sure it gets done and brought across the finish line. And so that ability to have those self-starters, those people who can project manage. And even if someone who's not, you know, coming to me as a seasoned project manager, but I can just tell from talking to them and hearing about projects and things they've been involved with in the past, this is someone who will learn. They just really need a little bit of, you know, guardrails and some guidance, but that, you know, push them along their way and they're going to get there. I can work with that. And that has been really successful for me. And I have to say for the past, I'll go back three companies, at least the teams that I have built there either are in some parts still there, or they've gone on to build their own teams, but either way, they were known at the time of being a really effective, strong team that, that delivered. And so that bias to action, that focus on, on delivering and being kind of self-starters, those kind of core characteristics are more important than having a few years experience in contract management or e-billing or whatever it may be. Do you feel those things are more teachable if you've got that that kind of uh, an it can be. Yes, again, but Yeah, back to your point sort of depends on the situation that I'm in, whether, you know, someone with some good CLMS experience under the belt, I always need those people. So, <laughs> but but I think, you know, the, the other key thing too is in a, particularly in, the, in these highly matrixed environments are people who know how to build relationships and aren't afraid to like get out and ask those questions and figure out who's who and build their own relationships is one thing for me to say, well, here's a list of people you can reach out to and what have you. But for them to be able to reach out and say, oh, I have this great relationship with this person over in engineering or in privacy ops or something like that. Like, that's invaluable. People who who can who aren't afraid to do that 
And then I would say, I'm a huge risk taker. I love taking risks, be it trying a new technology, new automation, new something or other, just to see what what can be gleaned from it. So I I love to have a team as well who doesn't shy away from that. I mean, they don't have to be as much of a risk taker as I am, but folks who aren't afraid to like, well, let's 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 check it out on this particular instance. We can afford to have a little bit of of um of space here to give ourselves this time to see if this new process will work before we sort of go to prime time. And that we have stumbled into some amazing technology solutions by being willing to do that rather than just constantly relying on like the current thing that everyone is talking about. I don't discount that, but I know just from experience, even now running my own consulting firm, that there are diamonds in the rough out there that who are just looking to return their call and have you spend 20 minutes on a demo with them. And you would be amazed at what you can find some of these smaller companies that are just up and coming now. That's really interesting, Susan. Presumably working in high growth tech companies was a great fit for you then because those are environments where you have more maybe latitude to take risks and space to do that. And and I'm curious when like maybe picking Twilio specifically, how do you go about supporting that kind of rapid growth of the business when you're in the legal ops role? How do you kind of do that effectively when you're presumably the the legal team is just growing exponentially they're growing into right. market products are launching uh, the business is kind of changing every 6 months how do you kind of support that or kind of keep pace with that yeah well there's certainly you know a journey obviously when i started as you know i was legal ops person number 1 you know we i had a built team of 7 or 8 by the time i left and you know, when I joined, we were about 20, 20-ish people and we were 180-ish when I left uh, the whole legal team itself. So, you know, there's a significant amount of growth over four years. And, you know, so I think when I when I walked in the door, I was certainly focused on fundamentals, you know, and, and those those key things that need to be in place, you know, e-billing and some form of matter management and, you know, starting to, to put some self-service out there for people because I was being hammered, you know, sort of being on my own. But as things evolved, being willing to take risks and, and steer away from some more traditional approaches where, you know, in the past I had hired someone dedicated to e-billing, you know, one of those first players you have in place. And I decided to go to another route and I decided to outsource right away rather than, you know, headcount was so precious at the time. And I thought to myself, just given the environment, I've forgotten actually which year that was, was two or three, but you know, I thought to myself, well, I can I can outsource to experts who do nothing all day but first level invoice review, which will ultimately then save time for my lawyers who will know that someone's already looked at these, someone's already applied our billing guidelines, like, you know, kind of that sort of efficiency. And then I can use that precious headcount in another way within legal ops, which at the time was project management. I really need someone who could manage like two to three large projects across privacy or commercial or you know, an enterprise uh, project. So I decided to take a risk and do that. And people were like, oh, how, how are you not hiring an e-billing person? I mean, that, that's clearly like the first thing you would put in place. And I just, my gut just said, I just don't feel like that's the way to go in this environment. I really need some uh, pinch hitters and some people who are more generalists, their experience that I can sort of allocate and deploy as needed versus someone who's going to be able to sit there and do e-billing all day. I mean, that doesn't, you know, that, that just wasn't the appeal at the time. And it was absolutely the right, right move to make. The other thing focused on very early on then was knowledge management. I think that even just with some of the engagements I have right now with clients, knowledge management is sometimes years down the line, right? They've just realized like things got away from them. Now we really need to focus on it. And I know coming in the door, that was one of the first things I focused on in Twilio is do we have the, inf- you know, do we have processes documented? Do people know where they are? Can they be found? You know, is the Google Drive organized? Like just 
some basic things that needed to be in place in order for people to like self-help, you know, when we were a really, really small ops team. So those were sort of the, the, the path, you know, as, as things started to started to really grow, but to put those good fundamentals in place. Yeah, that, that's really interesting, that point or that observation about what you needed from your kind of headcount perspective was another project manager because you had just more projects presumably coming down the track rather than somebody in maintenance mode managing e-billing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The, the other thing too was, you know, they had made some investments in some really good core technology. And when I walked in the door, it was those things were up and running, but they weren't being utilized to their full capability. So I know I spent like three years just taking the e-billing system we had and making sure we had every bell and whistle going. We had every automation we could going and everything was working until we got to the point where we were outgrowing it. But again, some of the companies that I've been talking to now, they have great technology in place and they're using about one third of its capability. And they're already wondering like, are we even on the right system? So again, I think, you know, focusing on those things early on as you're, the pace of the company is, is starting to click will really help you before, you know, things become unmanageable. And moving forward then, Susan, having started your own consultancy practice, how are you enjoying that when compared to life in it? I love it. I certainly was uh, was not expected. I you know I ended up out in the market mid to end October. You know the phone the phone. I just dated myself. The emails yeah. started coming in uh, from from GCs and people who were just you know hey here here's my situation right. I thought I was going to get to hire someone at your level. Guess what? Headcount has gotten pushed back at least one to two quarters, which now we're talking about you know potentially mid mm-hmm. you know twenty twenty three but I still have this operational roadmap or I need to put one in place. You know, is that something you would be interested in just helping us with? And so it sort of organically took off from there. I wasn't doing anything and had, uh, you know, this certain love of working, you know, with tech companies. So I've been fortunate enough, been working with some really large companies, a couple of small startups as well, but, you know, I have to tell you, it made my heart sing. And I hope people who hear this, will, their hearts will sing to have a startup with less than five attorneys say, well, we realize we really have to hire a legal operations person. So if we can't get that headcount right now, could you help us get something going? Because we know how vitally important it is. And I was thinking like, how many years have you been outside of law school? This is incredible. This is amazing. So, you know, the, the word is certainly out that the sooner the better of getting someone in, whether it's a consultant or an FTE dedicated to legal ops, how critical it is to their business, just really just made my day when I heard that. It's something I'm certainly from the conversations I have on the podcast and with other legal leaders, I I definitely have seen that change as well, where I think the new wave or new generation of of GCs and in-house lawyers understand legal ops and understand that it can be critical from kind of hire five, six, seven, eight in a legal team, the the impact that can make, which is, which is. I think that means we're doing it right. Alex, we must be doing something right. And all the the preaching and the podcasts and people out there at clock, you know, and, and people going to law schools to talk about, you know, what's happening in the real world. It it is getting through. It is clearly getting through. And it's win-win for those in-house lawyers. I think ultimately is creating fascinating opportunities and this whole new career path for professionals coming from a variety of backgrounds like like yourself, obviously. Maybe shifting gear a little bit then, Susan, I, I want to be respectful of your time. Can you tell us a little bit about your volunteering work with Child Fund International? Oh, yes. I was so excited that you uh, you had found that. Yes, I, I it's been 
it's been one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. It was actually a senior IP paralegal many, many years ago that had told me she had been part of child fund and she had helped support like three children over the years. And I found out a little bit more from about her. And the very next day I went and signed up and I, I am really happy to say I've been with my child. Her name is Ansi for 14 years and she is about to graduate high school. Um, she was, she was young, young girl, young, young little girl when I first was connected with her, but the, the funds, you know, the things that you are contributing to are all the, you know, their school uniforms and their textbooks and everything they need to get that education. You know, we've been pen pals now, oh, I just dated myself again, we've <laughs> corresponded together in various formats over 14 years, but no, it's been really amazing to watch her, you know, from very, um, I would say, dire circumstances as a, as a, as a baby, as a young infant, toddler to this, you know, beautiful, educated young woman who's going to go on and do amazing things with her life. She's in Jakarta, Indonesia. So watching her grow up, it's been so, so rewarding. It's an amazing thing to be involved with. And uh, I'm sure remarkable to see her, her development. And then finally, what do you enjoy doing in, in your spare time when you're not building your business now? May or may not be surprising to some, but I I am actually a huge mixed martial arts fan. I am a devotee to the UFC. I never miss a fight. I I never miss pay per view. Um, so really, really enjoy uh, watching cage fighting. I really enjoy that as sort of a sports outlet. Um, but then the other things I've gotten really involved on. Um, people who know me know this. I'm a huge virtual reality freak. Like just anything that comes out, I want to try it and push the limits and see what it can do. And um, so the one that I've really connected with is virtual reality working out. This is like a thing with your Oculus. And so there are these amazing workouts with a bunch of trainers that do live cardio workouts with you. And I'm a a total addict, total addict. So I cannot wait for the next iteration of the Oculus or the next headset because I'm already ready to go. So you really enjoy that. And then I have a big, strong, creative vein in me. So you'll always find me. My latest one this weekend is I'm going to try to make my own candles. I'm going to give it a shot. Like, you know, whether it's like I'm knitting a blanket, I've been knitting the same blanket, Alex, for five years. It looks (laughs) beautiful. It's really coming along. And now I'm going to try some candles. So maybe at some point I'll light my candle and cover myself with my, my homemade blanket. But yeah, those are things I, I have to have my creative outlet. Well, Susan, maybe next time, if, if if you ever join us again on the podcast, you can uh, you can demonstrate your your candle and your and your blanket. They can they can feature. But it has been an absolute pleasure having you on. I've learned a huge amount from the conversation, and uh, really really appreciate you taking the time to chat to us today. It's been really great fun, Alex. Thanks for having me. I'm Alex Kelly, host of the In House Outliers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Brightflag, an AI-powered legal operations platform where corporate legal departments gain visibility into operations, maximize productivity, and engage with outside counsel strategically. If you like this episode, then you can find more information in our show notes. If you want to hear more, then you can also find more episodes at brightflag.com forward slash legal hyphen operations hyphen podcast. Thanks again for listening to the In-House Outliers podcast. We'll see you again next time.